from the beautiful campus of California State University, San Bernardino, and the College of Arts and Letters, thank you for tuning in to the CSUSB Cal Podcasts. These podcasts focus on all things in the College of Arts and Letters. From our innovative, creative faculty in their teachings and outside projects to staff insights and our students carving their way in these COVID times. Today on Faculty Teaching with Dr. Popescu, Mahela is Professor in Department of Communication Studies at CSUSB, as well as Faculty Director, Extended Reality for Learning Lab, and Faculty Associate, Academic Technologies and Innovation, and welcome. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, Kelly. On our faculty teaching, we're going to start with you describing your research and your teaching interests in your own academic journey. Thank you. Um, Well, I thought I would start with my personal story, which is somewhat interesting. So like many of my colleagues, I was not born in the U.S. I actually grew up in communist Romania, which at the time constrained my education choices in a big way. So back then, the communist system was set up to sort of move people around according to centralized economic needs, not according to any kind of personal choices. So college graduates were simply assigned a job wherever the state needed them. And that was regardless of where their own families were or their own personal preferences. So I wanted to pursue something in the humanities, maybe language and literature. But my parents thought that if I did that, then I would be guaranteed to end up in some kind of remote village with no electricity, any kind of place that needed a high school teacher. So their reasoning was that if I went into software engineering, then I would be a computer specialist and I would end up in a big city because back then, and that was 1989, only big cities had computers. So I passed my college entrance exam and I dutifully started computer engineering. But the truth is that I was totally out of my depth. I mean, you know, I don't think like an engineer. I am the opposite of a practical person. Um, And I, you know, I just didn't enjoy it all that much, particularly since we were working with mainframe computers and punch cards. But I was very lucky to speak about Cosmic Fate. It was 1989. And that was my first year of college. And right then in December, the communist regime collapsed throughout Eastern Europe. Most of my colleagues and myself included, um, we went in the streets, we were protesting, things were very chaotic, you know, it was the end of an era. I mean, frankly, not very dissimilar to what is going on right now. And when things settled down, I started my major in sociology. Sociology was strictly prohibited in communism because it tended to sow dissidents. But after 1989, learning sociology felt like the thing to do. I mean, it felt supremely actual, if you want, and almost like a moral imperative because it was forcing us to engage with the here and now. There was a massive social restructuring happening right under our eyes. And it was fascinating to try to understand what was going on with our society and also with ourselves. So I was very lucky to benefit from several scholarships abroad one of which enabled me to finish a master's in uh, the sociology of communication at the Central European University. And this is where the irony comes in, because it was 
thanks to my knowledge of math and computing, that I was later employed uh, as a research associate with the Department of Economics at the Central European University, where I spent about five years studying privacy in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, until eventually I decided that I am still a humanist at heart and pursued a PhD in communication at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, the Annenberg School of Communication. And basically, my research and teaching interests were very much shaped by Arenberg, which is a highly interdisciplinary place and allows you to be who you are. Um, so I'm both a sociologist and a communication scholar. And it was there where I encountered my mentor, Dr. Oscar Gandhi, whose work in privacy essentially shaped the field of surveillance studies. And it was also there where I encountered the person with whom I write the most, Dr. Lemi Baruch, uh, who is an academic in Turkey, and with whom we've been writing for the past 10 years uh, in the area of surveillance and privacy, particularly um, how algorithms and big data reshape human agency and organizational priorities. So to make a long story short, I would describe my research interests as very eclectic, although they all have in common this fascination, if you want, with what's going on right now with digital culture, with the digital inequality induced by um, the use of algorithms, big data and surveillance, um, and, you know, the political economy of that as well. So Lenny and I are currently revising a co-authored book we wrote for MIT Press. The book is entitled Privacy as a Right to Becoming, Rethinking Privacy in the Algorithmic Age. In the book, we argue that contrary to current thinking that sees privacy either as a problem of data management or sim simply relevant to bigger issues of data justice. Um, so contrary to that thinking, we need to think of privacy as essential to expanding our freedom to grow and develop. Um, as you know, algorithmic personalization based on big data increasingly reshapes our choice, how we choose various things, how we tell our story, what we consume. So in our book, we chronicle these instances in which we surrender the critical task of working on ourselves and on building community to these automated and invisible mediators. And we argue that from this perspective, privacy is actually very much aligned with First Amendment values because privacy should not be seen as data protection, but as a way to discover our potentiality as human beings and as citizens. All right. In addition, uh, we know you've been at the forefront of the ARVR projects on campus. And so please share with us, how did you get involved with the ARVR projects? Thank you. Again, um, I mean, when I'm thinking back at my life, I cannot but notice the role that serendipity played in um, uh, in prompting me to do various things. And again, in this area also, it was a matter of serendipity. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, go to a conference with my colleague and friend, Kurt Collins, from uh, the art department. He's a professor of art design, uh, as well as the VP for IT, Dr. Sam Sudakar. And back then, we were thinking about the role that innovation plays in our teaching. And at the conference, somebody mentioned virtual reality and showed a virtual reality goggle. 
So, of course, we started talking and you know how the, the best part of our job is when we sit down with colleagues that think like us and who challenge us to think beyond our comfort zone. And we start brainstorming what we can do and why we should be doing it. So out of those incredible conversations, the idea of seeing how we might use virtual reality on campus came about. So when we returned, we sat down and engaged other colleagues and we shared our dream and people really got excited. You know, everybody wanted to see what this technology was about. And these are the best moments when you see people from many disciplines asking questions and coming together and getting really, you know, nothing matters anymore in that moment. They just want to get together and talk about this new thing and good ideas come forth out of these encounters. So that was how we came across Dr. Yunfei Hao from Computer Science, um, who also suggested uh, ideas. This is how we got James Trotter involved. James is the Assistant Director for Academic Technologies and Innovation, as well as Professor Scott Vance from Music. So out of all these encounters, we created the Extended Reality for Learning Lab, hopefully to inspire others and to rethink how we teach, particularly now that we can't teach face-to-face. What are the differences between AR, VR, and extended reality? Well, so extended reality is sort of an umbrella term for a variety of technologies that all have to do with um, enhancing reality in some way. For example, Augmented reality um, enables you to overlay digital information over the real environment. You are using a device such as a mobile device or goggles as a sort of lens through which you look at reality and you see information superimposed. And this information could be visual information. For example, you can look at a street sign and see it translated like um, the name of a street and see it translated in a different language. It could be haptic information. You could feel movement or it could be information about um, what businesses are around. So, but in any case, you do see the real reality. It's just that it's enhanced in some way. And Pokemon Go is the classic example of augmented reality. In contrast, virtual reality means that you are totally immersed in an environment that's completely digital. It's reconstructed. It's sort of ready player one environment. And of course, Second Life anticipated that, except that you were just projecting your avatar in another world. But virtual reality enables you to be fully immersed, body and all, and to block out any other sensory information so that you can experience everything in this constructed environment. Let's talk about uh, some of your projects. Please tell us about the AR and VR reality projects and share with us some of the features or the characteristics of the projects that you're involved with that are exciting to you. Great. Thank you. So before I do that, I would like to share a little bit about how the lab has uh, has been set up, because I think that's, uh, that will give you an interesting perspective over the projects that we are currently doing in the lab. So the whole idea from the beginning was to create a lab that enables people to come together and work alongside students and staff. So this is not a lab that 
is a mediator between, let's say, a commercial product and our faculty. It's a lab where we create together with our students. It's something that enables students to engage in projects and to learn how to interact with other students from other disciplines and how to do project management, as well as work alongside faculty and learn from faculty how to create these various projects. So we have various ideas and we are working with several faculty on campus in projects of varying complexities. For example, we have a project with nursing with Dr. Cheryl Brandt that's meant to teach students how to do a discharge interview from a hospital. And here's where virtual reality is very important for teaching because for ethical reasons, you can't have students working with live patients, right? You want to teach them how to interact with a patient, but you don't want to mess up the patient. So to do that in virtual reality is the best of both worlds. You get this sense of actually interacting with um, with somebody, but at the same time, you can do no harm, right? So this whole environment is set up so a student goes through um, script to discharge the patient and to, ha- to make a plan with the patient to manage pain, chronic pain. But the patient is actually a smart avatar, is an avatar that is moved by a machine learning engine so that it enables the avatar to react almost like a human would do. And we've already created one version of this, and now we are working with IBM to improve the algorithms that move the avatar, that have this natural language response. So here's an example in which you have to have a lot of minds come together because there are many pieces to this puzzle. You have first the programming of the environment in which computer scientists And we have nine of them working, nine undergraduate students working in our lab. So they have to build the environment on a platform called Unity. But also you have machine learning, right? And you have art design. Somebody has to do the design of the environment. And you have nursing expertise and you have psychological expertise, sound design. So all these things come together beautifully to enable us to do this kind of projects and you wake up for these moments when you see this coming together and working for our students and teaching them something new and exciting. So this is one project. But then we also have projects of less complexity with faculty from almost every college, from education, from social and behavioral sciences, from natural sciences. These are projects that try to reimagine how we can do virtual labs and virtual tours in the age of COVID-19. So, for example, we are working with uh, Dr. Wagner Doprado from Kinesiology to do a tour of his exercise physiology lab and to expand this tour in 11 other courses in kinesiology. Uh, We are working with Dr. Kathleen Phillips from Education to teach future teachers how to look at the classroom and how to identify whether that classroom encourages active learning or not. And many other projects that are incredibly interesting and incredibly innovative, given that we can't actually meet face to face with anybody right now. So those are the kind of projects we do at the lab. Um, from your vantage point, to what extent can AR, VR enhance the teaching, the research, specifically now that we're in this age of COVID-19? 
So one thing that we tried to do from the beginning was to identify projects that take advantage of the particular affordances of this new medium. The virtual reality, as well as other immersive technologies that are in the same bucket, is very good at allowing people to experience environments and times that they cannot otherwise access. For example, you can't see a volcano from the inside out. You can't see how molecules interact, right? You can't see the age of dinosaurs. You can read about it and you can have visuals, but you can't actually experience it in an embodied way. And there is something to be said about immersion and embodiment as an aid to helping us understand better. So this is one area in which virtual reality really has a leg up over other ways of teaching. Also, something I mentioned earlier, there are sometimes situations that ethically you cannot implement. For example, you can't teach a student in psychology how to interact with a child who has experienced trauma other than, you know, engaging in some role play or reading about it, but to actually interact with the child is not possible ethically, right? Except that in virtual reality is possible if you create an avatar that behaves like a child. And there are many other situations in which the sense of presence and immersion and embodiment add an extra dimension to how we teach and add this element of experiential learning that we can't replicate in uh, control conditions, like the conditions that we have in a classroom, right? So this is exciting. We are trying to get there. Of course, it's very challenging to do it in the current setup because we can't send goggles to students yet. We are working on that. However, there are shades of immersion between this full virtual reality in which you put goggles, you put headsets, and you are all of a sudden transported in a different world. And the other side, where you have 360-degree video, which is much easier to experience, but doesn't immerse you all that much. So there are all sorts of shades of immersion in between. And we are currently, with the help of Dr. Sudakar, who is a supporter of the lab, and President Morales, who's always supported these initiatives. So we are currently exploring ways to make the lab happen in distributed conditions from a distance, right? So all of us are everywhere, but we are trying to come together virtually to make it work. And, you know, so far so good. It seems that it's working. We were really fortunate to be supported by a VETI grant. So we got a grant to transform the face-to-face lab into a mobile lab. And as part of the grant, we bought equipment that we are going to distribute to the members of the lab. So I'm one of them. So I'm really looking forward to having a little corner in my living room when I'm going to set up my little virtual environment and start using the goggle and try to navigate a very crowded living room uh, with a husband and a kid and a mother and two cats and somehow (laughs) somehow for a few moments forget uh, that I'm there and see what I can do with (laughs) with the equipment. Well, Mahela, thank you for your time. The faculty teaching here at CSUSB College of Arts and Letters podcast series. We appreciate your time. This has been fascinating, and I just look forward to learning and hearing more. Thank you so much, Kelly, and I really appreciate your time, and I am so very honored to be part of this series. 
We hope you have enjoyed today's CSUSB Cal podcast. Look for other episodes from the College of Arts and Letters on the campus of California State University, San Bernardino.